Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. If you have not yet joined us in the Our Lady Undoer of Knots Novena, uh, please consider joining us. We're about uh, halfway through, so today this episode airs Monday, September 25th. We started this past Thursday, the 21st, so today's day five. Each morning at 6 a.m., I am reading the prayers live on Instagram, and um, I have invited all of you, continue to invite you, to uh, submit your intentions, petitions, and thanksgivings either on Instagram under any of the posts that uh, deal with this novena. You're also welcome to email me at contact at catholiclight.org or simply to offer up your petitions in your heart each day. So if you have not yet joined us, I invite you to join today. So catch days five through nine. Is that right? Yeah, five through nine. And then if you want, after you know, the community ends on the 29th, you could continue for four more days and still, you know, we'll overlap for at least half of the novena. So I mentioned on the last episode that I, this idea came from reading um, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus says, if two of you on earth agree about anything for which you are to pray, your prayers will be heard by my heavenly Father. So I keep saying, let's cash in on on Jesus's promise. Let's take him at its word. Uh, We believe that God is truth itself. God does not lie to us. And so if this is what he says he's going to do, let's let's take him up on it. So if you haven't yet joined, uh, please consider joining today. And um, I'll post, I think I posted in the show notes on last week's episode, both on the whatever podcast service you use and then on my YouTube channel, I posted the link to the prayers. So you can look there for the link to the prayers. You could also simply just Google Our Lady Undoer of Knots Novena prayers and a number of of uh, sites will come up with those prayers for you. And for those of you who have, uh, who did join me on the 21st and are partway through the novena uh, with me and with our community. Thanks for joining me, and I'm lifting up your prayers, your intentions, your thanksgivings each day, and um, thanking God for, for already hearing and answering our prayers. So go team. Go Catholic Light Podcast team. All right, on today's episode, on the second half of the episode, we'll read paragraphs 2258 through 2291, and we'll discuss the fifth commandment, which is you shall not kill. Um, so I had referenced when we started the the commandments I had referenced, what was it, page 497, 496 through 497. Um, The Ten Commandments appear in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. They appear in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. And um, so the Catechism presents the commandments to us in these three columns, how they're worded in Exodus, how they're worded in Deuteronomy, and then all the way to the right a traditional catechetical formula, so a simplified way of of teaching these commandments is listed as well. So for commandment five in Exodus chapter 20, the commandment is given to us as you shall not kill. In Deuteronomy chapter five, the fifth commandment is given given to us as you shall not kill. And then the traditional catechetical formula is you shall not kill. So pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And yet we know from... um, Either life circumstances, personal life circumstances, the circumstances of our family, friends, uh, colleagues, um, or simply you know stories that we hear along the way. It's not always it's not always so simple. Um, you know, it's it's easy to say you shall not kill, and we know that intuitively. That's that's part of the natural law written on our hearts. But when we get to situations again, either personally or we hear of of others encountering these situations where it's. Um, you know, end of life circumstances where a woman feels like she's caught in a no-win situation, and the only way she sees out is through through abortion, or um, God forbid, you know, we we know someone who is dealing with something that has to do with capital punishment, where it's like, um, I know I'm supposed to forgive this person who has, God forbid, taken the life of someone I know and love. Um, but I just can't imagine that person continuing to walk around on earth. So the, the the command is very simple, straightforward, you shall not kill. But the catechism gets into some 
more specifics of each of these situations. And so we'll we'll discuss a few here. We'll talk about legitimate defense when it comes to uh, wars. We'll talk about capital punishment. We'll talk about abortion. And then um, briefly touch on, on end-of-life circumstances. So first, in paragraph 2263, the Catechism talks about legitimate defense. And uh, partway through the paragraph, the Catechism says, the act of self-defense can have a double effect, the preservation of one's own life and the killing of the aggressor. The one is intended, the other is not. So the act of self-defense preserving one's own life is intended. So recall at our, our beginning, the beginning of our discussion on morality, I talked about how every action we take, every thing we do, has an object, a what, what are we doing, an end or an intention, why are we doing that, and then circumstances, who, where, when, how, etc. And so... The act of self-defense, the the primary object is to preserve one's life, uh, which is good and written in our human hearts. So um, if we skip ahead to paragraph, where was that? So a little bit later in the passage, uh, paragraph 2281, um, which deals with the issue of suicide. It says, suicide contradicts the natural inclination of the human being to preserve and perpetuate his life. It is gravely contrary to the just love of self. So it's, it's written within our hearts, within our humanity, to preserve. Um, e- even if we're really struggling in life, we, we know at a basic level that life is good. It's better to exist than not to exist. And so it's, it's naturally imprinted within us to protect and preserve our life, which is good. Um, and it falls under the virtue of justice to, what did we say here? Gravely contrary to the just love of self. So it is just to love oneself um, because the self, our lives, are good, created by God, given to us as gift. And so legitimate defense has this double effect. Preservation of one's own life, that is the object in self-defense. That is the what that I am doing. The why is to preserve, protect, maintain my life. And then um, the the double effect, the, the unintended effect, is the killing of the aggressor. And so the catechism spells out um, a little more specifically what that self-defense um, justly looks like or properly looks like. So the catechism quotes in paragraph 2264, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, so first, someone who defends his life is not guilty of murder, even if he is forced to deal his aggress- aggressor a lethal blow. St. Thomas Aquinas writes, if a man in self-defense uses more than necessary violence, it will be unlawful. So we are called in self-defense. It is right, it is just, it is good to protect and preserve our own lives with just as much force as necessary to do that and not to go beyond that. Um, so you know, very simply, if we can injure the aggressor but not kill him or her to protect our own life, then that's the good. That's the object. That's what we want to do. Um, and not we. It, it would then be unjust. It would be wrong, unlawful, evil to use more force intentionally will more force and use more force than is necessary. So if a man in self-defense uses more than necessary violence, it will be unlawful. Whereas if he repels force with moderation, his defense will be lawful. Nor is it necessary for salvation that a man omit the fact, excuse me, omit the act of moderate self-defense to avoid killing the other man, since one is bound to take more care of one's own life than of another's. So first we are entrusted with the care of our own lives and then with the the lives potentially of others. And so to protect, preserve, maintain our own life is a good, um, it is just, it is virtuous, and um, we want to do that. God forbid if we're in that situation, we want, we want to do that by using the the least amount of force as possible, but sometimes the force that is required, as the catechism says, um, means dealing our aggressor a lethal blow. So please, Jesus, may we never be in that situation, um, but know a little more specifically here the difference between legitimate self-defense and um, how that plays out under the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. 
Paragraph 2265 goes on to say, legitimate defense can be not only a right, but a grave duty for one who is responsible for the lives of others. The defense of the common good requires that an unjust aggressor be rendered unable to cause harm. For this reason, those who legitimately hold authority also have the right to use arms to repel aggressors against the civil community entrusted to their responsibility. Um, so when it comes to wars, we are called to, there's um, a couple different requirements for a war to be considered just, and one of them is that we use the the least amount of force necessary when it comes to uh, fighting off our aggressors, but sometimes, oftentimes, that involves the, the use of, of arms um, and potentially le- dealing lethal blows so as to protect those who have been entrusted to us, or in this case, those who have been entrusted to the leaders of our country, our principality, whatever it is. The catechism catechism then goes on to discuss uh, this concept in terms of capital punishment. So 2267 says, punishment then, so 2266, punishment then, in addition to defending public order and protecting people's safety, has a medicinal purpose. As far as possible, it must contribute to the correction of the guilty party. So when someone is found guilty of whatever crime, the hope is, in terms of salvation history, in terms of the the great perspective of God created each and every one of us out of love, calls each and every one of us back to himself in love. Um, the hope is that all will be sanctified, saved, and reconciled with God and the rest of humanity. And so um, punishment is seen as medicinal, so as, as correcting the person's behavior. Um, 2267 says, Assuming that the guilty party's identity and responsibility have been fully determined, the traditional teaching of the church does not exclude recourse to the death penalty if this is the only possible way of affecting, effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. So if the guilty person is unrepentant and um, has the ability to continue to hurt, God forbid, kill others, capital punishment is not ruled out. So the, the church does not say that capital punishment can never be used. However, it says, if, however, non-lethal means are sufficient to defend and protect people's safety from the aggressor, authority will limit itself to such means as these are more in keeping with the concrete conditions of the common good and more in conformity with the dignity of the human person. So if we have the, the means of containing that aggressor, aka if we have a sufficiently run prison system, then capital punishment is off the table, is not needed because we can contain the aggressor. Today, in fact, the catechism goes on to say, today, in fact, as a consequence of the possibilities which the state has for effectively preventing crime by rendering one who has committed an offense incapable of doing harm without definitively taking away from him the possibility of redeeming himself, the cases in which the execution of the offender is an absolute necessity are, quote unquote, very rare, if not practically non-existent. And if you look at the footnote there, that refers to footnote 68. And this um, quote comes from Pope John Paul II in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, which means the gospel of life. So basically, it's very rare. The instances are few and far between where we don't have, people do not have, countries do not have the capability of containing an unjust aggressor. In other words, our, our prison systems um, are, are advanced enough at this point where we can, can contain um, criminals and those who seek to continue to hurt or take the lives of others. And so um, the need for capital punishment is, what does he say, very rare if not practically non-existent. I also heard it said somewhere, I forget if it was from Evangelium Vitae or perhaps one of my professors at Steubenville talked about this, when capital punishment is on the table, a possibility or, you know, being used, uh, oftentimes it can have the effect of stoking within us the the victims of the crime or, or very sadly the, the people who lost a loved one to this criminal, the, um, you know, the, if someone, God forbid, killed uh, someone we know and love, and they are going to be capitally punished, are going to receive lethal injection, et cetera. Um, it stokes within, has the potential to stoke within the victims of that crime and then within society at large, a desire for um, revenge, 
um, for the for the criminal to experience, you know, pain and suffering. B- basically, it does something in us, the the victims, society at large, uh, which is um, like unhappy and unhealthy. And I don't. It's it's. I want to say this in the right way because, um, you know, if you have, God forbid, lost someone, um, and I can't imagine. Like sometimes I think about. Um, you know, if, if anything happened to, to Dan or my children, like I, I can't imagine what I would do or, or be thinking and feeling. But what the church teaches is that capital punishment um, d- doesn't help the victims. It doesn't help um, ultimately in in forgiveness, um, which again is is unimaginable to me if I if I put myself in that situation. Um, but Nothing. Scripture tells us again and again that that nothing unclean can enter heaven, uh, nothing unreconciled can enter heaven. And so, even when we're the victims and we did absolutely nothing to bring about this this crime, this evil, um, and we suffer the effects of that evil, that sadness, uh, we we still need to reconcile that with with the Lord and um, with the human family. And so. Again, what what the church teaches is that capital punishment will often stoke that that desire for revenge, for inflicting pain and and hurt on um, the aggressor of the crime. We can think of a number of saints uh, throughout church history and incredibly virtuous people, you know, of of recent history. I'm thinking of um, Immaculate Elabagitsa, who lost her family and friends to the Rwandan Holocaust. And I, I tear up thinking of it, you know, forgave um, the the unjust aggressors, the people who, who carried out that Holocaust. And um, what we know from personal experience and what the scriptures teach us is that forgiveness is even more, even more than for the person being forgiven, it's, it's more so for us uh, so that we're not holding the, the hatred and, the brokenness in our own hearts, but we're giving that over to God and allowing Him to to transform us and and to heal us and and to bring something new out of that. Which, again, as I say it, it's it's just unimaginable when I think of of the people in my lot my life if if anything happened to them. So, please, God, uh, protect us, protect each and every one of us, our family and friends, and um, give us the grace to to forgive those who have hurt us and. Um, to just bless, bless and anoint our relationships and, and bring something that we can't even imagine out of these, this hurt and these wounds that uh, we have experienced. So come Lord Jesus. The Catechism also talks about uh, abortion. So 2270 says, human life must be respected and protected absolutely from the moment of conception. Paragraph 2271 then quotes, uh, or says first, since the first century, the church has affirmed the moral evil of every procured abortion. This teaching has not changed and remains unchangeable. Direct abortion, that is to say, abortion willed either as an end or a means is gravely contrary to the moral law. And then there's two quotes here. The first comes from, uh, the Didache, which is Latin, Greek, Greek, I believe, for 12. And this is, if you do a quick Google search, the Didache was a, a document, is a document of the first century. And uh, we don't know the author, but um, we believe that this was written by the, the 12 apostles. So it's, it's, it's actually like a first catechism. Um, so there's kind of basic teachings of the faith, our beliefs, our sacraments. And one of them, as we see quoted here in 2271, is you shall not kill the embryo by abortion and shall not cause the newborn to perish. So that's coming to us from the first century. Um, I, over the years I had students who, so, uh, GK Chesterton, um, talked about the, the democracy of the dead. So just because people are dead doesn't mean they, they didn't say wise and profound things and we should still listen to them even though they're dead. And I found, um, I'm sure I do this as well, but I found in my students over the years, some would say like, they would kind of like poo poo, um, history, (laughs) Or say like, oh, that was like long ago. People were not as advanced, didn't know as much, didn't have the technology, etc. Um, and a number would say, as we got into some of the like sticky moral issues, like you know, in vitro fertilization, or um, uh, what is it? 
or ectopic pregnancies where an embryo adheres to a woman's fallopian tube and doesn't descend fully into the uterus. And, you know, if the baby continues to grow there, that will be, that could mean death for for both the mother and the child. And so, you know, if we're not, um, if abortion is evil, how, like how do you navigate that? And so the, my students would say, some of my students would say over the years, um, you know, the church, like how do we know that, this is what Jesus teaches or would have taught 2,000 years later. Like the church was basically like in the dark ages, didn't know. We, we didn't have in vitro fertilization, um, you know, back in the time of Jesus. But, but God in his wisdom, who's outside of time and space, there's no past, there's no future. God is eternally present. He, he saw all that coming. <laughs> he knows all. And so he provided for that. Um, and provides, continues to provide for that in and through his divine revelation, so through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And so a number of my students were surprised um, to learn that abortion existed in the time of Jesus. There was no planned parenthood, but um, uh, means were taken to abort children, and that the church was already speaking out against that. And so, you know, many will say, like, the church needs to get with the times. The times have evolved. Um Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he, the truth is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so God has been guiding us on all of these issues and continues to do so, not in a finger-wagging kind of way, um, but in a way that leads to life and happiness for each and every one of us. Why? Because God created human beings. He knows how we work, and he knows the goal, the end of happiness, and how to help us achieve that. And so um, I heard it said at one point that whenever you speak about abortion, speak about it as though every woman in the room has had one, and every man in the room has lost a child to abortion. Because so many people, um, not, not to de- negate the the evil of the act, but so, so many people feel um, like they're caught, like they, they have no way out. This is the only choice, which is so ironic because, um, you know, the the, the drum that the, the pro-choicers will beat is, you know, we want to offer choice and really so many people who choose abortion feel they have no choice. And so we should speak about it in a way um, that is, is sensitive to the men and women who have, have lost children to abortion. Thanks be to God, there are, um, you know, so many resources now for those who have lost children to abortion, uh, such as Rachel's Vineyard. And um, so many women and men have experienced healing uh, where the, this beautiful retreat week weekend offers an opportunity to ask your child or children for forgiveness, um, to name that child or those children, and to entrust them to the care of Jesus, who, who already has them in his care. Um, but so many women and men uh, just experience so much sadness after having had an abortion. And so I say this um, to say that we should be sensitive to the men and women who have either cho- chosen this or been forced into the this decision. In, in conjunction with that, uh, we also should not, you know, negate the the horror, the evil of abortion. And abortions a day take place in the United States or to, prior to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which that was just wild, wild. I never thought in my lifetime I would see that overturned. Um, I've, I've mentioned before on Catholic Light Podcast here that uh, my mom passed away a couple years ago. And um, since she passed away, a number of family and friends have, we, we pray through her intercession, and um, a number of family and friends have said, like, oh my gosh, like, I saw this prayer answered, you know, Gina was interceding for me, I know Gina took this this prayer straight up to heaven, so if you want a, if you want a solid intercessor, pray through the intercession of Regina Pine. Um, so it's, it's now, it's, my immediate family, we, we joke about how, um, you know, Gina's like right there snuggled under Jesus and we just entrust our, our intentions to her and, um, you know, th- thanks blessed mother, but I'm going to give them to, to Gina and she gives them right to Gina, to, uh, Jesus. So I was joking with my sister one day, I said, man, I think like, um, and I said this to my dad directly that, uh, he, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus suffered and died on the cross, but Gina is interceding for all of us. Like that's where the real prayers get answered. 
And so I was I was joking with my sister. I said, yeah, I think I think dad like just attributes all of salvation history now to to Gina Pine. And my sister said, oh, yeah, I do, too. I mean, I think Roe versus Wade was overturned. Thanks to mom. (laughs) So (laughs) God bless all those who uh, who made that happen, those on earth and those in, in heaven interceding for us. Um, but prior to the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade, uh, which which came into law in 1973, there were something like 3,000 3, abortions took place each day. And so now in, you know, 20, the, the last statistic I read was in 2021, but now in 2023, over 63 million abortions have taken place in our country alone. Um, and with the advent of of the abortion pill, so things like Plan B, um, so many abortions go unaccounted. So, so sadly, there you know there are even more that take place each day in our country. And so we should, we should on the one hand or simultaneously. So here's our our Catholic both and, um, be sensitive to, pray for the healing of, and be supportive of men and women who who have had abortions or helped facilitate abortions, and um, pray for their healing. And, um, you know, encourage them if they have not already encountered things like Rachel's Vineyard, help them like really get that healing, not just in the next life, but now. Um, and then simultaneously speak of abortion in its, its true light, which it's, it's evil. It's the destruction of a human life and um, the fact that it was legal in our country and continues to be legal in, in our country in so many states um, and so many countries around the world is is just really, really a horror. Um, you might be familiar with Jennifer Fulweiler. She's a, a big Catholic personality now. I think she actually does uh, like stand-up comedy. Um, but she experienced, I think she went from atheism to Catholicism, atheism to theism to Catholicism, um, has written a couple books, you know, speaks far and wide on her conversion. And at one point she was talking about abortion and she said, she said, you know, I think, I think any law that considers a person less than a full person. So for example, she cited um, how in the United States, slaves used to be considered three fifths of a person, which is abominable. Um, now we see that that children in the womb are often referred to as fetuses, which I think simply means in Latin, small person. Um, they're considered inside the womb less than a full person. She said any society that considers a person less than a full person um, is is not a fit society, is not a healthy, um, rational society because – in the words of, of Dr. Seuss, who apparently distanced himself from, or maybe his, his family, his estate, distanced himself from the pro-life movement. But in the words of Dr. Seuss, every uh, person's a person, a person's a person, no matter how small. Um, and so we, we recognize the, the beauty of life from the moment of conception until death. I might have mentioned that our children are in our local public school and, um, so we, Dan and I try to stay on top of, of uh, you know, the curriculum, and, and they're, they're little at this point. So, um, you know, the curriculum's, pretty, the curriculum's pretty innocuous, but um, we know that it won't always be that way. So we're, we're poised and ready for the next step. But in the meantime, uh, you know, we ask the kids each day, like, what did you learn about? And, you know, what are some of the things you talked about in class? And so Sophia last year went through, um, I think it was one, one of the months was devoted to uh, like a, a women's history month. And so each one day a week, I think they, uh, went through, you know, awesome women in history. And so one night we're, you know, putting the kids to bed, we're saying our family rosary and just kind of chatting through the day. I said, so, you know, for your, your women's, uh, women in history, um, discussions, who were some of the women you talked about? And, uh, you know, she remembered like a handful of, of, big names and then couldn't remember the others. I said, okay, how about I'll list some names of famous women and you tell me if you talked about them. So I said, how about Amelia Earhart? She said, oh yeah, yeah, we talked about her. I said, how about Clara Barton? Oh yeah, yeah, we talked about her. I said, how about Margaret Sanger? She goes, um, I think we did talk about her. I was like, okay. So I, I don't make a face, you know, because I don't want 
want uh, Sophia to, you know, distrust her teacher for the rest of the year. Um, but I, I make a mental note, like, let's check with the teacher, um, this list of, of women in history they've been studying. So if you're not familiar, Margaret Sanger is the considered the founder of Planned Parenthood. And um, she was a eugenicist who wanted to eradicate the African-American population. And um, she sought to do that through making abortion legal. And um, sadly, it continues to do that. And so I wanted to make sure that that Margaret Sanger was not being touted as uh, a great woman, great woman of history in Sophia's classroom. And so I emailed the teacher like, hey, just wondering, could you provide a list? Sophia's been talking about the women in history, you know, you, you discussed in class. Would you mind providing a list of uh, all the women that you covered? And so the teacher wrote me back. They had not covered Margaret, Margaret Sanger. I imagine as I was rattling off these names to Sophia, she was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank God they did not uh, laud Margaret Sanger. But sadly, um, Margaret Sanger is lauded far and wide. Um, there are a number of Margaret Sanger awards given out by Planned Parenthood um, to leaders of our country and leaders of the world. And, um, you know, just a, a quick, you don't even have to do a deep dive, just a quick Google search of who Margaret Sanger was and her goals um, reveal that, uh, you know, she's pretty nefarious uh, wanting to eliminate um, whom she considered unfit members of the population. So come Lord Jesus, um, please make abortion illegal far and wide and give us the grace to love and serve men and women who are in need, who find themselves in situations of unplanned pregnancies. Give them the grace to choose life and um, to love the lives. Give us all the grace to love the lives entrusted to us. Um, if you're looking to help the, the pro-life cause to support men and women who feel like they've been backed into a corner and are considering abortion, um, one great, I think, concrete thing you could do is to contact uh, the Sisters of Life. So the Sisters of Life mission is to serve men and women who are considering abortion and then when, God willing, they choose life to support them uh, throughout pregnancy and beyond. So, you know, it's it's easy to say, like, we're against abortion, choose life. But then, as many of you know, if you have young children, that, like, that begins the journey. Like, pregnancy is a journey, and then life with small children is a journey. And so, um, you know, if we can support these men and women in choosing life during pregnancy and beyond, what what a gift and um, what a responsibility all of us have. And so the Sisters of Life have a program or a, a group called the Coworkers, where if you become a coworker, you simply sign up with the Sisters of Life. They put you in contact with people locally who might need help setting up a crib, who might need help driving to a doctor's appointment, who might need help with a little babysitting so that you know he or she can can go work a job to support you know, this little babe. And so if you're interested in becoming a, a coworker, you can simply Google Sisters of Life coworkers and find more information there. Uh, there's a, a wonderful priest in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia who was praying in front of an abortion clinic down in Philadelphia one day. And a woman came in um, to have an abortion and he pulled her aside and said, like, what's going on? Why do you feel like this is, like, th this is what you have to do? She had, I believe it was four other children, and her husband had just been killed um, in this, this gang violence. She was pregnant with their fifth, and she said, Father, I, I can't support another child. I, I, I feel like I literally have, you know, nothing to give this child. And um, he said, well, how about you come live? I have an extra room in the rectory. How about you come live with me, and I'll, you know, my parish and I will help you. <laughs> I tear up thinking of this. Um, my parish and I will help you care for your children, and help you welcome this fifth child into your family. And um, she did. She moved into this extra room in the rectory. The parish just like rallied around her. And um, I believe that her fifth was a little boy. I think he's, you know, like four or five years old at this point. And just so loved and supported by this parish. So God bless, God bless that priest and God bless so many who not only pray in front of abortion clinics, but then, you know, walk with these women step by step, these men and women who felt like they had no other option um, and, you know, help them know that they are beautiful children of God who um, deserve 
you know, love and respect and, um, you know, help them, help them live uh, a more beautiful life. So still, still hard. It's difficult, but with the love and support of others, it can be so much better. So if you're, if you're, you're looking to, to love and support, um, those in need, you know, do a, again, a quick Google search, Sisters of Life coworkers and see how you can help. A quick word on end-of-life circumstances and then on suicide. So first, end-of-life circumstances are dealt with in paragraphs, well, under the euthanasia section, 2276 through 2279. Euthanasia, so the um, the willing of the ending of one's life um, is, you know, falls under thou shalt not kill and is considered evil. However, when we're in these end of life circumstances where, um, you know, we're, we're helping to preserve, extend, and then knowing when to end, um, the care of, of a loved one, um, it becomes, it feels like it gets like, oh, it's not so like clear cut. And so um, paragraph 2278 says this, discontinuing medical procedures that are burdensome, dangerous, extraordinary, or disproportionate to the expected outcome can be legitimate. It is the refusal of overzealous treatment. So if a loved one is in a situation where he or she is is being kept alive um, and the the treatment, the care is, what did the catechism say? Disproportionate to the expected outcome. So, um, you know, you're spending a lot of time and money and, and energy on this care, which will then lead to um, a disproportionate outcome. In other words, the person might not be able to won't be able to function at, um, you know, a higher level. Um, it's considered not euthanasia. It's considered um, of stopping extraordinary measures. So we're called to provide ordinary measures, so the basics of life, um, you know, food and water and air. Um, but then once we get into, in many situations, we get into this extended um, care involving, you know, medicine and various provisions to, to keep the person alive, That's that gets into the realm of extraordinary care, which we are not, um, we, d- we don't have to provide, which one must not uh, is not required to provide. And so, um, you know, family members will, will figure out with each other and, you know, can consult um, others, medical professionals, uh, you know, spiritual advisors, if you're in a situation where it's like, ah, what do we do? And when do we do this? Um, but just know that, that there's a difference between ordinary care and extraordinary care. We are called to provide the ordinary basic care, um, but not the extraordinary care. So paragraph 2278 goes on to say, here one does not will to cause death. One's inability to impede it is merely accepted. So if I remove certain medical devices from you know, a loved one, I'm not willing the death of my loved one, um, but I'm simply recognizing my inability to impede it. So death is imminent or perhaps the person has, has suffered so much loss at this point that um, he or she cannot recuperate and so to remove you know certain medical care um, is is licit acceptable and often considered uh, good the dish the the, excuse me the decisions should be made by the patient if he is competent and able or if not by those legally entitled to act for the patient whose reasonable will and legitimate interests must always be respected so um you know, the person acting, what's that, power of attorney, um, living will, uh, the person acting in the stead of the person who's receiving the health care is called to make decisions based on what he or she thinks the loved one receiving the medical care would want. 2279 goes on to say, even if death is thought imminent, the ordinary care owed to a sick person cannot be legitimately interrupted. The use of painkillers to alleviate the sufferings of the dying, even at the risk of shortening their days, can be morally in conformity with human dignity if death is not willed as either an end or a means, but only foreseen and tolerated as inevitable. Palliative care is a special form of disinterested charity. As such, it should be encouraged. Okay, so it is it's charitable to help that person for whom death is imminent um, 
be more comfortable, not experience as much pain. And we provide what we can, the best we can, in a way that's consistent with um, or that's supportive of the person's state. And again, I think that line uh, from 2278 is key. Here, one does not will to cause death. So in removing certain treatments, we're not willing the death of the person, but we're simply recognizing our inability to impede it. Um, and so we make that those that final time as comfortable for the, the person who is suffering as possible. Okay, lastly, just a quick word about suicide, which is covered in 2280 through 2283. 2280 says we are stewards, not owners of the life God has entrusted to us. It is not ours to dispose of. And then 2288 says grave psychological disturbances, anguish, or grave fear of hardship, suffering, or torture can diminish the responsibility of the one committing suicide. 2283 says uh, we should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. By ways known to him alone, God can provide the opportunity for salutary repentance. The church prays for persons who have taken their own lives. So at some point in church history, of recent history, I think churches did not allow um, persons who had committed suicide to be buried in a church cemetery, thinking that, okay, the Lord says, thou shalt not kill. To take one's own life is to commit a grave or um, mortal sin. And so that person went to hell and cannot be buried in a church cemetery. The The church recognizes, so th this is what I've heard. I don't know. I've never actually seen this written, but this is what I've heard. Um, the church recognizes that to take one's own life, some serious things must be at play. And as the church says here, grave psychological disturbances, anguish, or grave fear of hardship, suffering, or torture can diminish the responsibility of the one committing suicide. For a person to take his or her own life, serious things need to be going on. We don't know what those serious things are always. That's between the person and God. And so we entrust that person to the mercy of God. We pray, if, if we know of a person who has committed suicide, we pray for the repose of that soul. We pray, God, in your mercy, you love this person more than even we do. You want this person in heaven with you. And so please cleanse, purify, reconcile that person and bring him or her to heaven. And so we, I just love how the catechism says, um, we don't despair. We should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. We should not despair. And so we should continue to pray for that person, for the repose of his or her soul, and then for the, the healing and comfort of his or her family and friends. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, for all, all people involved in any of these topics we just discussed, we pray for the grace for each and every one of us to, to choose life, to love our lives, and to love and support the lives of others. Give us the grace to, to cherish the gift of life in ourselves and in the lives of others. Um, please help us to work towards uh, creating communities and a society that also cherishes life. And we pray for, for those who, who have gone before us. So we pray for the repose of the souls of loved ones, uh, no matter what the circumstances are. We pray for, for their healing, their reconciliation, and ultimately the repose of their souls with you in heaven. We thank you for loving us, for the gift of our lives, and we pray for, for the grace to spend them, to live them well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll take a brief break, and then on the second half of the episode, we'll read paragraphs 2258 through 2291. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 2258 through 2291. Article 5, the Fifth Commandment, You Shall Not Kill. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, You shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Human life is sacred because from its beginning it involves the creative action of God, and it remains forever in a special relationship with the Creator who is its sole end. God alone is the Lord of life from its beginning until its end. No one can under any circumstance claim for himself the right directly to destroy an innocent human being. Respect for human life. The witness of sacred history. 
In the account of Abel's murder by his brother Cain, Scripture reveals the presence of anger and envy in man, consequences of original sin, from the beginning of human history. Man has become the enemy of his fellow man. God declares the wickedness of this fratricide. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The covenant between God and mankind is interwoven with reminders of God's gift of human life and man's murderous violence. For your lifeblood I will surely require a reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The Old Testament always considers blood a sacred sign of life. This teaching remains necessary for all time. Scripture specifies the prohibition contained in the fifth commandment. Do not slay the innocent and the righteous. The deliberate murder of an innocent person is gravely contrary to the dignity of the human being, to the golden rule, and to the holiness of the Creator. The law forbidding it is universally valid. It obliges each and everyone, always and everywhere. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord recalls the commandment, You shall not kill, and adds to it the prescription of anger, hatred, and vengeance. Going further, Christ asks his disciples to turn the other cheek, to love their enemies. He did not defend himself and told Peter to leave his sword in its sheath. Legitimate defense. The the legitimate defense of persons and societies is not an exception to the prohibition against the murder of the innocent that constitutes intentional killing. The act of self-defense can have a double effect, the preservation of one's own life and the killing of the aggressor. The one is intended, the other is not. Love toward oneself remains a fundamental principle of morality. Therefore, it is legitimate to insist on respect for one's own right to life. Someone who defends his life is not guilty of murder, even if he is forced to deal his aggressor a lethal blow. If a man in self-defense uses more than necessary violence, it will be unlawful. Whereas if he repels force with moderation, his defense will be lawful. Nor is it necessary for salvation that a man omit the act of moderate self-defense to avoid killing the other man, since one is bound to take more care of one's own life than of another's. That's St. Thomas Aquinas. Legitimate defense can be not only a right, but a grave duty for one who is responsible for the lives of others. The defense of the common good requires that an unjust aggressor be rendered unable to cause harm. For this reason, those who legitimately hold authority also have the right to use arms to repel aggressors against the civil community entrusted to their responsibility. The efforts of the state to curb the spread of behavior harmful to people's rights and to the basic rules of civil society correspond to the requirement of safeguarding the common good. Legitimate public authority has the right and the duty to inflict punishment proportionate to the gravity of the offense. Punishment has the primary aim of redressing the disorder introduced by the offense. When it is willingly accepted by the guilty party, it assumes the value of expiation. Punishment, then, in addition to defending public order and protecting people's safety, has a medicinal purpose. As far as possible, it must contribute to the correction of the guilty party. Assuming that the guilty party's identity and responsibility have been fully determined, the traditional teaching of the Church does not exclude recourse to the death penalty, if this is the only possible way of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. If, however, non-lethal means are sufficient to defend and protect people's safety from the aggressor, authority will limit itself to such means. As these are more in keeping with the concrete conditions of the common good and more in conformity with the dignity of the human person. Today, in fact, as a consequence of the possibilities which the state has for effectively preventing crime, by rendering one who has committed an offense incapable of doing harm, without definitively taking away from him the possibility of redeeming himself, the cases in which the execution of the offender is an absolute necessity are very rare, if not practically non existent. That's Pope John Paul II. Intentional homicide. The fifth commandment forbids direct and intentional killing as gravely sinful. The murderer and those who cooperate voluntarily in murder commit a sin that cries out to heaven for vengeance. Infanticide, fratricide, parricide, and the murder of a spouse are especially grave crimes by reason of the natural bonds which they break. Concern for eugenics or public health cannot justify any murder, even if commanded by public authority. The fifth commandment forbids doing anything with the intention of indirectly bringing about a person's death. The moral law prohibits exposing someone to mortal danger without grave reason, as well as refusing assistance to a person in danger. 
The acceptance by human society of murderous famines without efforts to remedy them is a scandalous injustice and a grave offense. Those whose usurious and avaricious dealings lead to the hunger and death of their brethren in the human family indirectly commit homicide, which is imputable to them. Unintentional killing is not morally imputable, but one is not exonerated from grave offense if, without proportionate reasons, he has acted in a way that brings about someone's death, even without the intention to do so. Abortion. Human life must be respected and protected absolutely from the moment of conception. From the first moment of his existence, a human being must be recognized as having the rights of a person, among which is the inviolable right of every innocent being to life. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately wrought in the depths of the earth. Since the first century, the church has affirmed the moral evil of every procured abortion. This teaching has not changed and remains unchangeable. Direct abortion, that is to say, abortion willed either as an end or a means, is gravely contrary to the moral law. You shall not kill the embryo by abortion and shall not cause the newborn to perish. God, the Lord of life, has entrusted to men the noble mission of safeguarding life, and men must carry it out in a manner worthy of themselves. Life must be protected with the utmost care from the moment of conception. Abortion and infanticide are abominable crimes. Formal cooperation in an abortion constitutes a grave offense. The church attaches the canonical penalty of excommunication to this crime against human life. A person who procures a completed abortion incurs excommunication, laite sententiae, by the very commission of the offense and subject to the conditions provided by canon law. The church does not thereby, thereby intend to restrict the scope of mercy. Rather, she makes clear the gravity of the crime committed, the irreparable harm done to the innocent who is put to death, as well as to the parents and the whole of society. The inalienable right to life of every innocent human individual is a constitutive element of a civil society and its legislation. The inalienable rights of the person must be recognized and respected by civil society and the political authority. These human rights depend neither on single individuals nor on parents, nor do they represent a concession made by society and the state. They belong to human nature and are inherent in the person by virtue of the creative act from which the person took his origin. Among such fundamental rights, one should mention in this regard every human being's right to life and physical integrity from the moment of conception until death. The moment a positive law deprives a category of human beings of the protection which civil legislation ought to accord them, the state is denying the equality of all before the law. When the state does not place its power at the service of the rights of each citizen, and in particular of the more vulnerable, the very foundations of a saint, excuse me, of a state based on law are undermined. As a consequence of the respect and protection which must be ensured for the unborn child from the moment of conception, the law must provide appropriate penal sanctions for every deliberate violation of the child's rights. Since it must be treated from conception as a person, the embryo must be defended in its integrity, cared for and healed as far as possible like any other human being. Prenatal diagnosis is morally licit if it respects the life and integrity of the embryo and the human fetus and is directed towards its safeguarding or healing as an individual. It is gravely opposed to the moral law when this is done with the thought of possibly inducing an abortion, depending upon the results. A diagnosis must not be the equivalent of a death sentence. One must hold as licit procedures carried out on the human embryo which respect the life and integrity of the embryo and do not involve disproportionate risks for it, but are directed towards its healing, the improvement of its condition of health, or its individual survival. It is immoral to produce human embryos intended for exploitation as disposable biological material. Certain attempts to influence chromosomic or genetic inheritance are not therapeutic but are aimed at producing human beings selected according to sex or other predetermined qualities. Such manipulations are contrary to the personal dignity of the human being and his integrity and identity, which are unique and unrepeatable. Euthanasia. Those whose lives are diminished or weakened deserve special respect. Sick or handicapped persons should be helped to lead lives as normal as possible. 
Whatever its motives and means, direct euthanasia consists in putting an end to the lives of the handicapped, sick, or dying persons. It is morally unacceptable. Thus, an act or omission, which of itself or by intention causes death in order to eliminate suffering, constitutes a murder gravely contrary to the dignity of the human person and to the respect due to the living God, his creator. The error of judgment into which one can fall in good faith does not change the nature of this murderous act, which must must always be forbidden and excluded. Discontinuing medical procedures that are burdensome, dangerous, extraordinary, or disproportionate to the expected outcome can be legitimate. It is the refusal of overzealous treatment. Here one does not will to cause death. One's inability to impede it is merely accepted. The decision should be made by the patient if he is competent and able, or if not, by those legally entitled to act for the patient, whose reasonable will and legitimate interests must always be respected. Even if death is thought imminent, the ordinary care owed to a sick person cannot be legitimately interrupted. The use of painkillers to alleviate the sufferings of the dying, even at the risk of shortening their days, can be morally in conformity with human dignity if death is not willed as either an end or a means, but only foreseen and tolerated as inevitable. Palliative care is a special form of disinterested charity. As such, it should be encouraged. Suicide. Everyone is responsible for his life before God who has given it to him. It is God who remains the sovereign master of life. We are obliged to accept life gratefully and preserve it for his honor and the salvation of our souls. We are stewards, not owners, of the life God has entrusted to us. It is not ours to to dispose of. Suicide contradicts the natural inclination of the human being to preserve and perpetuate his life. It is gravely contrary to the just love of self. It likewise offends love of neighbor because it unjustly breaks the ties of solidarity with family, nation, and other human societies to which we continue to have obligations. Suicide is contrary to love for the living God. If suicide is committed with the intention of setting an example, especially to the young, it also takes on the gravity of scandal. Voluntary cooperation in suicide is contrary to the moral law. Grave psychological disturbances, anguish, or grave fear of hardship, suffering, or torture can diminish the responsibility of the one committing suicide. We should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. By ways known to him alone, God can provide the opportunity for salutary repentance. The Church prays for persons who have taken their own lives. Respect for the dignity of persons. Respect for the souls of others. Scandal. Scandal is an attitude or behavior which leads another to do evil. The person who gives scandal becomes his neighbor's tempter. He damages virtue and integrity. He may even draw his brother into spiritual death. Scandal is a grave offense if by deed or omission another is deliberately led into a grave offense. Scandal takes on a particular gravity by reason of the authority of those who cause it or the weakness of those who are scandalized. It prompted our Lord to utter this curse. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Scandal is grave when given by those who by nature or office are obliged to teach and educate others. Jesus reproaches the scribes and Pharisees on this account. He likens them to wolves in sheep's clothing. Scandal can be provoked by laws or institutions, by fashion or opinion. Therefore, they are guilty of scandal who establish laws or social structures leading to the decline of morals and the corruption of religious practice, or to social conditions that intentionally or not make Christian conduct and obedience to the commandments difficult and practically impossible. This is also true of business leaders who make rules encouraging fraud, teachers who provoke their children to anger, or manipulators of public opinion who turn it away from moral values. Anyone who uses the power at his disposal in such a way that it leads others to do wrong becomes guilty of scandal and responsible for the evil he has directly or indirectly encouraged. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to him by whom they come. Respect for health. Life and physical health are precious gifts entrusted to us by God. We must take reasonable care of them, taking into account the needs of others and the common good. Concern for the health of its citizens requires that society help in the attainment of living conditions that allow them to grow and reach maturity. Food and clothing, housing, health care, basic education, employment, and social assistance. 
If morality requires respect for the life of the body, it does not make it an absolute value. It rejects a neo-pagan notion that tends to promote the cult of the body, to sacrifice everything for its sake, to idolize physical perfection and success at sports. By its selective preference of the strong over the weak, such a conception can lead to the perversion of human relationships. The virtue of temperance disposes us to avoid every kind of excess, the abuse of food, alcohol, tobacco, or medicine. Those incur grave guilt who, by drunkenness or a love of speed, endanger their own and others' safety on the road, at sea, or in the air. The use of drugs inflicts very grave damage on human health and life. Their use, except on strictly therapeutic grounds, is a grave offense. Clandestine production of and trafficking in drugs are scandalous practices. They constitute and direct cooperation in evil, since they encourage people to practices gravely contrary to the moral law. This brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me. Again, if you didn't start the novena with us, I encourage you to join today and finish out the second half and then pray four more days on your own. Unite your prayers to those of the Catholic Light podcast community. Uh, Between this week and next week's episode, I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.